0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: You can brew a cup of tea at a different temperature and, and a different length of time and that will entirely change the cup. So say I brew it at 160 for two minutes, it would totally taste completely different if I brewed it at 185 for five minutes. And so just the, I guess, expressions of character, of flavor that you can get out of a single tea just never makes me bored.
2: (laughs) Now, I don't think I would do that. I don't think I would devote an afternoon to heating up the same tea at different temperatures and brew times to see how it impacts the experience. But I have my own obsessions. And for Lauren Danson, her obsession, tea, drinking it, learning about it, serving it, has become the centerpiece of her life and of her business. And that's the whole point of the passion economy. I'm Adam Davidson, and on the show, I talk to regular people who have figured out how to harness their passion and thrive in an economy that can be terrifying and confusing. We talk a lot on this show about the importance of having a niche, a narrow focus that you can own. It can be fully yours. But I'm pretty sure Lauren Danson has the narrowest niche of anyone I've ever met. She's the founder and CEO of Mizuba Tea Company, and they sell only one kind of product. She's not just selling tea. She's not just selling green tea. They sell matcha, green tea from Uji, Japan, that she buys from only three suppliers. And by the way, there are a ton of matcha green tea suppliers in Uji, Japan, because it is the historical home of matcha tea. But Lauren won't buy from just anyone. She wants to buy tea from people she has a deep relationship with so that she can convey that intimate relationship to her customers, explain what's behind the tea, who's behind the tea. But we'll get to all that. First, her background. Lauren grew up in Santa Barbara, California, and the city, its vibe clearly shaped her.
1: Santa Barbara is full of awesome restaurants, and because it's a really small community of people like food, it's pretty easy to get involved in food. My parents specifically were on the board of the American Institute of Wine and Food in the 80s and 90s. So growing up, I was surrounded by my parents' friends who were always bringing over awesome food, and being able to taste new flavors was always just not a question to me.
2: Gotcha. And you did a fair bit of traveling when you were a kid?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So my parents had a lot of friends from church who were usually missionaries, and so it was a good excuse to go see (laughs) the world a bit, you know, and visit my family's friends. And how I remember most of these travels were basically through the people we met, the food we ate, and for me, the tea that we had. (laughs) What kind of established a base of my obsession with tea is just, like, thinking back to my mom and how she would give me, like, a mug of constant comment by Bigelow every morning before school, and, like, that was my kind of relationship thing with my mom, but that... That memory is just infused with flavor, right? So when we were traveling, it was no different. She would always bring me a cup of tea at breakfast, but they were also different than what I had at home. And so it was like she would bring me the tea bag, and it was all different art and different languages. And I would collect these tea bags from all over the world. And a lot of my memories, even if it was breakfast or just hanging out, meeting new people in the afternoon, I just always remember like those moments from. <laughs> Pretty much like hoarding the tea bags <laughs> on the table. <laughs> I, I had sketchbooks that I would paste, like glue stick these tea bags into because I just love the artwork of it and the quality was there. So when I tasted it, I was like, wow, I'm getting such good muscatel flavors or like floral flavors. And my parents are very active in our community's wine network. So like I was tasting tea like wine without realizing it.
2: Now, Lauren wants to be very clear. For her, tea was just a real passion, but it never occurred to her that it could be a business. It was just something she loved. When she went off to college, Westmont College in Santa Barbara, the farthest thing from her mind was becoming a business person. She was thinking about Charles Dickens.
1: I was an English journalism major, and my specialty, my senior thesis was on Charles Dickens. So I spent the majority of my time reading a lot of Charles Dickens novels. And my sophomore year, I was put in the dorm room that was, you know, way up the hill that nobody wanted to walk to. And so I got all my friends to come visit me by hosting like these open dorm room tea sessions.
2: I had a hard time picturing this because I just never think of college kids wanting to get together for tea parties.
1: When I say tea parties, I don't mean like, you know, sit down, grandma-style thing. It was more of like, I, you know, I'd like to think like a beatnik coffee house situation mm-hmm. <laughs> where I would move aside all the furniture, put like a picnic blanket down on the ground. And instead of having like an underwear drawer and a dresser like a normal person, I had my tea stash like fully take over most of my dresser.
2: <laughs> then Lauren spends two semesters abroad. She studies in London She travels the world a bit, and everywhere she goes, just because she loves it, she's going to tea houses. She's studying the local tea. Then she goes to Japan to visit a family friend with her dad. Just another fun trip.
1: I was not going to Japan to start a company. At all. I was a senior in college. I was focusing on graduating. I was focusing on getting my degree. What I didn't say about all those college tea parties was that everybody there was actually telling me back in sophomore year, it was like, this is what you have to do for a living. You have to do something in tea. But I was the one that was telling everybody like, no, no, no. Like, I'm here to get a degree. I wouldn't even know how to start a tea company. Numbers are terrifying. Yep. Business. I'm not a business major. There's big right? money
2: in writing about Charles Dickens. I could make a fortune. Yeah, I know. (laughs)
1: Oh, you're telling me. Absolutely. (laughs) No, but I I was very focused. I was like, I actually had at that point been accepted to the publishing institute at the University of Denver and was like dreaming about publishing cookbooks at Chronicle Books and stuff like that. So I, I had different focuses as well. But like, you know, I, tea for me was always a hobby. It was a passion, you know, and I recognized that. And so I was like, okay, there's hobbies and then there's degrees and careers. So I just did not realize or just I wasn't aware that you could merge that in vocation.
2: But in Japan, she experiences the first of what Lauren calls the three catalysts.
1: I knew there'd be good tea there. I just did not know how good this tea would be. So went to Japan. And the first thing I always do when I travel is go to the grocery store. And of course, if you're me, you always go straight to the tea section. And I went to the tea section and the lowest shelf of that section with the cheapest teas was still 20 times better than anything I'd ever had in America. So I tasted all these teas and I'm like, wow, like this is really affordable and really accessible. How come I can't find that at home? And that was, like, the first catalyst that kind of got my gears turning about, like, okay, I want to see a change. I want the affordable accessibility and quality in tea in California.
2: So you get this tea in this supermarket, and and you have this insight. Hey, I want to bring this to America. But what's the next—what happens next?
1: What was the next catalyst? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it wasn't so much, like— oh, I want to bring this tea to America. It was more of the question of like, how I want to see this accessible quality in America with any kind of tea at that point. I was just happy that I was trying these green teas. And so the next catalyst was I noticed just culturally, almost every relationship I made in friendship I made in Japan was always over a cup of tea. And I've experienced that to some degree with, especially now with beverage culture here, you know, you ask people for a cup of coffee or you, you know, you always bring a bottle of wine to like a dinner engagement or something like that. Just like connecting over beverages. But when I was in Japan for the first time, it was the the first time the light bulb really struck of like, oh my gosh, Lauren, this is how you make friends. <laughs> this was how you made all your friends in college, was by hosting tea parties, but this is kind of more institutionalized. And so I was like, oh, I'd also really like to see that at home.
2: So, okay, so you're having this great experience, you're loving tea, you know there's something they're doing over there that we're not doing over here, but people probably would like, (laughs) Yeah. what happens next?
1: So you're right. The third catalyst (laughs) is I got connected with a tea farmer and that was it.
2: And how do you get connected with a tea farmer?
1: That's the question everybody asks me. And it's pretty funny. To me, it's basically divine provision. But the first time I went to Japan, we took the train down to Nara, which is this crazy place full of like thousands of deer that just run the streets. And then we, on the way back from that trip, we stopped at a station called Uji, which is like Fuji, but without the F. So U-J-I. And there was only one sentence in the guidebook about Uji that my dad had. And the one sentence said, birthplace of really, really good tea. And I was like, "Stop everything! We're jumping off the train. Let's go! It's late. I don't care." And <laughs> my, my my friend and my daughter are like, "Okay." So when you go to Japan, there's very specialized like places. So there's the town for wasabi. There's the town for, you know, pickles. Or there's the town of kimono fabric. Right? Uji is truly the home of tea. I like to say it's the historical home of matcha because it's the first place where tea seeds uh, were planted in Japan, and it's also the region where the tea ceremony originated. So as a specialized tea town, you know, there's tea restaurants, there's tea noodle houses, there's tea dessert houses, there's obviously tea shops. And in Japan, everybody is so hospitable and so generous, and they're like, oh, well, you really like tea? You should talk to a tea farmer. And I was like, okay, yes, absolutely. And not, again, at this point, not to start a business, but just because I was so excited about tea. And I got the contact information and promptly started emailing this tea manufacturer. And he and I emailed for about six months. So I went off to Denver, did my publishing institute. But the whole time I was in grad school, I was emailing Hayashi-san and talking about you know tea tins and writing copy and not even really know what I was doing <laughs> just kind of dreaming I guess about like oh how do I get this matcha back home and the week I graduated and came back to Santa Barbara I got an email and he, the team manufacturer was writing asking if it would be okay for him to send me samples of his matcha and if I could sell it. And I just said, okay, send samples. But I have to say all the while my dad and my other best friend from college, my other best friend was a business major and his name's David. And he and my dad were like, Lauren, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do for your life. And so while I was just kind of in la-la tea land, my best friend wrote me a wholesale sheet and he was talking to my dad about incorporating a business. And so I don't even remember saying yes to starting Mizuba. but one night my dad and my best friend were like, here, here's a seal, sign this document. Oh, you're incorporated now. Congratulations.
2: Really? Your dad incorporated you? Yeah. Yeah. And were they saying, like, this is your passion, you should do your passion? Were they saying there's an opportunity in tea? Nobody said there
1: was an opportunity in tea. Everyone around me was like, Lauren, this is what you love. You have to do this.
2: But it's one thing to love something and another to turn it into a successful business. That's after the break. So the business Lauren runs today is Mizuba Tea Company. Now, talking to Lauren, I realized I have been drinking tea my entire life. I like it. I'm not obsessed with it, but I like tea. But I came to realize I don't know anything about tea, (laughs) like anything. And Lauren, who's really young, she's only 28 now. She started the business when she was 22. She seems to know everything. So I took the opportunity to get a quick crash course in tea
1: all tea comes from one plant, the Camellia sinensis. If it's not from that plant, then it's considered a tisane. So say mate and rooibos, those are a bunch of herbs, right? So those are tizans. Um, and chamomiles in there as well. So when you have the main categories of tea from one plant, you have white teas, green teas, yellow teas, oolongs and blacks, and a another category called dark teas. But we'll that's a different class. So, um, when we talk about different types of teas, we are talking about basically different styles of production, different ways of processing. These leaves, and I like to actually think of these teas as a as a range of oxidation.
2: And what does oxidize mean?
1: Oh, great question. So, when you expose something to air, so think about an apple or an avocado, when you notice that, like when you cut open this apple, it turns brown uh, over a period of time. It's because The inside of the apple is being exposed to air, so it's changing the molecules a little bit. So with tea, you're taking this really fresh leaf, right? And so at a certain point, you want to stop the oxidation process. So perhaps white teas are least oxidized because the oxidation process is stopped really quickly. Green teas in Japan, for example, they steam the leaves to... Stop the oxidation process to stop the oxygen from fully like completing that chemical process, which affects flavor, which is really important.
2: What do these trees? Do they look like a bush or what does the tea plant look like?
1: (laughs) Both. So tea was discovered in China thousands of years ago, and those... There's still places in China where you can have wild tea trees. Most of the world, if you imagine like a tea terrace, they are actually kept in bushes so it's easier to harvest.
2: These are people walking around plucking the buds?
1: If it's high quality, because you can imagine if you're harvesting something by hand, that takes a lot of labor. Yeah. They will... Always harvest the new growth or the first flush. That's where your tea, the high quality tea will come from. So every year the tea plants are dormant over winter. They store up all their nutrients. And then you can imagine like, you know, new things growing in spring. You've seen that like the new buds open and there's new growth. That's what you want to harvest.
2: And then I learned most importantly for this interview, what exactly is it she sells? What she built her business around?
1: I like to consider matcha the champagne of Japanese green tea for a few reasons. As you might know, champagne can only truly be called a champagne if it's from that region. Similar to matcha, matcha can only truly, truly be called matcha if it's from Japan. So it comes from the same plant all tea comes from, but it is the green tea leaf that's been stone milled into a fine powder and they use that powder in the very iconic japanese tea ceremony
2: yeah and that was surprising to me that it's it's not a loose tea or a bag tea it's kind of this powder that they froth up kind of like if you're old fashioned shaving br- brush or something like it
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty it's pretty interesting because actually before people Like in the general tea consciousness at steeped tea, it was actually always frothed. Like the earliest iterations of tea drinking were frothing. So it's interesting how it went from that as a common kind of primitive way to becoming a highly specialized, Mm -hmm. revered kind of form of tea drinking. It's actually very difficult to produce matcha. Less than 2% of Japan's total tea production is matcha because it's a highly specialized process. So you have the tea plants, right? And then matcha, here's the second part, matcha must be shade grown. So they actually put tarps over the tea plants for about anywhere two to four weeks prior to harvest. So the tea plants grow in the sun all year, but right before harvest season, they put these shade tarps over the plants. And there's two ways. If you can imagine kind of like a plastic tarp that's really close over these tea bushes, or there's a secondary method where they're like up on poles and there's these like curtains coming over the tea plants. So those cost about a million dollars to put in. if they're done well. So very specialized. And what that does is those tarps inhibit the plants from fully completing photosynthesis. So those tarps block about 90 to 95% of sunlight. And as the plants strain to complete that photosynthesis cycle, they end up sending their chlorophyll and their amino acids to the leaf, most notably L-theanine. And L-theanine as amino acid, people like freak out about in the health world, but Also, it has a very sweet flavor. So what those farmers are doing is that they're mitigating and kind of, I guess, toying with the flavor profile of the leaf by putting the shade on the plants.
2: Then those tea leaves have to be ground in a very specific kind of stone mill, a granite mill, in a special way that Japanese tea producers have crafted over centuries because you want to crush it which exposes it to air, but you don't want to expose it to air so much that it oxidizes, and you also don't want to apply a lot of friction that heats it up. So great matcha tea is this very fine, bright green powder. It's not overly oxidized, not already heated. That is matcha. And so once Lauren knew about the greatest matcha, she wasn't going to go with any other kind of matcha. She was only going to focus on the best matcha, the one that is handpicked at exactly the right time from exactly the right kind of shaded environment, stone ground in exactly the right way in Uji, Japan. And that's what Lauren sells in the United States. So how is she doing it?
1: Going back to that moment where David and my dad were like, you're doing this now. <laughs> yeah, I it, we never approached Mizuba by saying, like, you can make money off of this. And it was never about that. And I'm so thankful that it wasn't because I would have been terrified. And actually, I was terrified. I'm not saying I wasn't. I think I cried so much the first year. It was terrible. (laughs) I was really overwhelmed, you know? You're right, I had absolutely zero business experience and it was a 90 degree learning curve.
2: So what what happens when you get those samples?
1: <laughs> this box literally showed up on my doorstep from Japan. Oh, my goodness. I actually have a picture of me hugging the box on my doorstep.
2: Wow. How big was the box?
1: Bigger than me. Bigger than my torso. <laughs> I'm 5'5", five five, so <laughs> it was big. It was a big box.
2: And was there like an expectation? Like, here's 20 pounds. I want two grand back or whatever. Oh,
1: we paid him for it. So I had my savings and if there was something I was going to spend money on, it was tea, right? So I had no problem doing that. <laughs> so with the samples, I I was like, okay, if I want matcha somewhere, where would I want to go get it in Santa Barbara? So I was like, if I wanted to have matcha ice cream, who am I going to talk to? Or if I want matcha in this cafe, where would be my favorite cafe to experience this really high quality tea. And so I started emailing these people and asking them if they wanted to have a tea party with me. I would use that verbiage. And everybody was like, yeah, sure. I was pretty surprised that, I was surprised and humbled that some really successful business owners would want to take time with a 22-year-old girl and have tea. But more often than not, everybody's like, oh, I'd love to. How about like next Tuesday? And that's how Mazuba started.
2: And was that to sell to them wholesale? Mm -hmm. Was that the goal? That was
1: the goal. Yeah. That was David. That was my best friend who was the business major. (laughs) He was like, after you have a tea party and if they like it, you should tell them that you can sell it to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Gotcha.
2: So how long did it take to move 20 pounds of tea?
1: Just a few months. So I started, like I said, with the samples, and that was just for me to try and decide what I liked. And then we started out with like a small curated line. So I think I only had three types of matcha to start. I should say just like wine and say red wine, uh, you have a green tea, right? But then you have different flavor characteristics. So you can taste something like, say, the difference between a Pinot noir and a Syrah. There's just different characteristics. So I had three different kinds of matcha and then I had a matcha that I envisioned would be great to sell in bulk to say a coffee shop or an ice creamery or a bakery or even a cocktail bar. And at the same time, I was in conversations with Chronicle Books about a matcha cookbook. Uh That's a whole nother story. So I was kind of playing around with food and I developed some recipes. So it was pretty easy for me to talk and rely on my food knowledge about how people could incorporate matcha into their business model. Because you can imagine if you come up to somebody with a bunch of green powder, they're going to be like, what am I supposed to do with this, right? And how is this going to be easy? Do I need all these ancient tools? And I was able to have this quality, like have a product that had a lot of integrity behind it that they could appreciate it, but also communicate it in a way that made it efficient for them so they could present this high-quality product in an efficient environment. I think that's very important.
2: And who—so walk me through your customers. Who do you sell to?
1: Oh, man. Retail-wise I or I mean, you retail
2: and wholesale? Let's yeah, start there. Yeah,
1: wholesale. My bread and butter are coffee shops, for sure, because you can make awesome matcha lattes. And I speak barista. I love training shops. That's more of, like, probably my passion behind it is teaching— people the front lines the coffee shops the baristas to prepare matcha with integrity so for example 95 percent of my coffee shops still use the traditional bamboo whisk that you would use in the tea ceremony to prepare our matcha in a modern coffee shop setting so bringing that tradition into a modern coffee shop setting so that's my favorite but we also work with skincare lines yoga studios hotels juice bars we work with a lot of boutiques, so probably independent gourmet markets. We do work with grocery stores, I should say that. But I actually didn't start working with grocery stores until probably like two and a half years into it. So again, it was the food community that really took on the product at first. Retail-wise, we have shipped to all 50 states. I was a little surprised when I got a lot of orders from like Nebraska and Texas, but somehow the internet is a beautiful and terrible thing at the same time. (laughs) That was pretty magical.
2: Are the corporate accounts more local, like the coffee shops? Oh, no.
1: We have wholesale accounts nationwide.
2: What is a day in the life of the company? How many people work for you?
1: One full-time employee. (laughs) As I mentioned, my family is so great. I'm very thankful for them. I've kind of roped in my entire family into working for me. So (laughs) the reason I didn't have to hire any major employees for probably three and a half years is because my mom is a rock star. So my dad is actually about to retire as a doctor this summer. Congrats to dad. But he, like I mentioned, he's owned his own doctor's practice for 30 plus years. So he's kind of a whiz at payroll and taxes and insurance and all that stuff. So my dad's my CFO. My mom it, handles the majority of our shipping in Santa Barbara. So we import to Santa Barbara, California. I actually currently reside in Portland, Oregon. So we have an HQ up here and we import to both locations. But my mom handles all the Southern California shipping and deliveries and is a general rock star. And then we, my husband is my graphic designer and my brother makes traditional tea bowls for me. So (laughs) (laughs) kind of wrangled everyone into it.
2: So Lauren's business runs on this scrappy combination of hard work and friends and family pitching in. And is that really something we can learn from? Well, I think it is. That's after the break. You might be listening to Lauren's story and thinking, this is a one-off. My instinct is if someone came to me and said, hey, I'm going to build a business that has to sustain my family and I'm only going to sell seven varieties of this really specific tea from this one place in Japan, my instinct would be, yeah, that's not going to work. That's way too narrow. There just aren't enough people in the world who are desperate for that particular variety of tea. And it's not like Lauren had some grand plan. She didn't do a bunch of market research and realize that matcha tea is about to blow up. And if she becomes the market leader in highest quality matcha tea, she'll be well positioned. Although all of that did end up happening. Lauren's story is a bit of luck and a whole lot of the benefit of a truly deep engagement with a topic, a passion that isn't just enjoying consuming the tea, but enjoying learning every single thing about it. At its center, Lauren's business is built around her understanding of matcha tea and, more specifically, her deep relationship with the people who produce matcha tea, particularly one matcha tea manufacturer. And in that relationship, it's not just that they like each other or they're friends, it's that she understands everything about what goes in to great matcha tea. And that turns out to be something a lot of people in America are interested in.
1: You know, I was not angling myself as a business. I just found myself in this thing and I was like, okay, my main focus is like, if I'm going to share this, how am I going to share it? And it was... Such a gift for this matcha manufacturer to share his really high quality tea with me. And that's what kind of really kept me focused on matcha because it's what I had. You know, all I have is my story, (laughs) which now has proved to be very powerful because so many people are like, oh, it's all about the narrative. Like, how are you going to craft your narrative? And I never had to craft something and I never had to, I never felt like I had to sell anything. I feel like there's a lot of companies that want to position their product of like, oh, well, I'm going to fix your life with this. Yeah, something this green is going to be good for you, but I'm not going to promise that it's like going to, you know, prevent UV rays from touching your skin. (laughs) Trust me, that's actually been said. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you guys. So I'm what I could promise you is that this tea is a beautiful experience and enriching to your life, you know, so that's what I was comfortable with. You know, and I really quickly learned that your natural enthusiasm is huge because I don't, you're right, I don't know how to sell things, but I know how to get excited about things. And when I was excited about tea, everybody around me also got really excited about it. And I just think that pure enjoyment is what really drove Mazuba. And
2: why not expand to other teas since you also have passion for those and you...
1: Yeah, because there's so much to do with matcha. I have matcha, but I have actually seven different kinds of it. And so individualizing each tea, communicating why each tea was special, and because it's a powder, it's so versatile, right? So, I mean, I had the whole gamut of coffee shops wanting to use it, cocktail bars wanting to use it, ice creameries wanting to use it. I I work with skincare companies who put it in face masks. So just kind of focusing on that has allowed me to kind of press into all its different uses and different industries. And at the same time, keep in mind, I'm still building a business. So as somebody who didn't have any business background, I was pretty overwhelmed with like, okay, like, wow, I can share this, but I also have to build infrastructure. So I actually, for me now, see a distinction of my passion and like my passion is my passion. That's what I really enjoy. But my job is now like an entrepreneur in (laughs) e-commerce, right? So It's fascinating when you have this passion, you're thrown into business, you're learning business. It's not separate, but there come seasons where like 80% of what you do is actually running a business. And then 20% is enjoying maybe communicating about tea or doing what I'm doing now is sharing my story.
2: And it sounds like what you're saying is much is enough. Like, it's yeah. there's a lot of business there just
1: with well, you don't. Need... I mean, what I'll say is stay tuned to our Instagram. That's, that's okay. what I'll say.
2: <laughs> so you might expand to other
1: carefully well, selected do, and curated... If I do, they'll only be very relationship-based.
2: And part of that relationship, I mean, it sounds like part of it is just satisfying to have these deep relationships, but part of it is also... To be able to tell the compelling story you tell, like, there's just only so much you can know. Like, if you have 50 suppliers, you can't know all 50 with a deep level of intimacy.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I've got three suppliers. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Okay, so I've been with Mizuba for five and a half years now. And so as mentioned, like, whenever I'm in Japan, I meet awesome producers of loose leaf tea as well. So if we do expand, I would expand into different Japanese teas from people that I've known. But with matcha, I mean, it's not my goal to take over the world. Like, I, it's never really been my interest to be in Costco, you know, or be in every single grocery store because... As mentioned, like, I, I'm most excited about tea quality, right, and tea integrity and the consumer's experience of what they get when they get Mizuba, right? So I think that's where our partnership with coffee shops has just really been integral to Mizuba as a tea company, which is might sound ironic to people, but I married somebody who's been in coffee for 10 years. And it's a very similar language. Like there's that passion to present a craft well. So in the past, I've definitely had opportunities where people wanted to take Mizuba and put it in every single product they had in every single grocery store. So in other words, like mass distribution. But what I learned from experience is that usually when those people approach you, they want to take your entire supply chain at like a bulk volume discount. So I was like, I had a decision. I was like, well, I could partner with this giant corporation who would, that would be just my partnership and be everywhere, but they wouldn't pay me full price. Or I could work with countless independent coffee shops across the nation that would pay full price, you know? So very early on, I also kind of learned that who you partner with speaks back onto your brand. And so that also kind of stems from the relationship way I just experienced business was that collaborations, like people trust brands, right? So if you work with somebody that their audience trusts them and then you start working with them, that audience starts to trust you right so those kind of factors of like i preferred working with independently owned shops who kind of would sustain my vision of presenting the product well and then also just having those relationships like speak back onto how people perceived mizuba
2: to me you exactly exemplify how this economy is both an economy of high scale, but also of narrow, deep, intimate passion. Those both exist.
1: It's so fascinating because there's just so many variables that kind of were the perfect storm for Mizuba and for matcha itself. Because at least for us, like, you know, when I started Mizuba, I was fresh out of college. So I was working from the mindset of a college budget, right? And then had this really premium luxury product. Like our tea was actually featured in Vogue magazine a year after I started. And yeah, it blew my mind. I don't know how that happened, but I, you know, was dealing all of a sudden with like, even going through a personal process of like, wait a minute, my mission is to make high quality tea accessible. And matcha itself actually kind of lends to that because a little goes a really, really long way. For example, serving size of this tea is about a half teaspoon or just two grams. So this was just a blessing, but like my manufacturers, I I didn't realize what was going on, but they, you know, I ordered the tins and those are 40 gram tins. So that's about... 20 to 30 servings, depending on how much you use. But in general, could be a small tin is 30 servings of tea. So if I sell that for $20, that's less than a dollar per cup for the consumer, even though it's a high-quality luxury product. So even though there's so much integrity to it. And you could also say, well, the yen was good at that time, so you can buy it and then sell it for that or whatever. But we've been maintained that price for six years, or almost six years. So it was this weird world where you had luxury people starting to get really excited about it, but also the wellness industry. Matcha has become really famous in America for its health and wellness properties. So the only true 110% like wellness component, I'll promise you, is that it's going to enrich your life. But here's XYZ, why people say it's good for you, and here are the verified stories.
2: Like a lot of specialty businesses, Lauren essentially has two customers. She has the end consumer, the person who's going to actually drink and enjoy the tea or the powder that's in some health supplement or whatever. And she has the middle person, the store, the manufacturer of health supplements, and that means she has a business-to-consumer, B2C message, and a business-to-business, B2B message. Now, consumers, they love a story, and they love a true, compelling story, one that is simple but engaging, enough that Lauren can tell it to a tea purveyor who can then tell it to customers for months and years to come, and the customers can then tell their friends as they're serving the tea. And I don't think of that as nonsense. I think of that as a real part of enjoying a certain kind of cultural product like wine or great cheese, understanding the cultural context, where it comes from, how it was made, what was important to the person making it. That certainly adds a lot to my experience of a lot of foods and a reason to pay more for them. But business to business is a different game because typically businesses are more rational. They want to hear an actual numeric reason, something you can put in a spreadsheet and justify spending a premium on if you're selling a premium product. And Lauren does that as well. She can talk to them about how this matcha powder is potent in a whole host of ways that others won't be. I'm sure that you can go on Alibaba and buy giant vats of matcha for very, very cheap, but a lot of health supplement companies, ice cream companies that want a matcha layer on their ice cream, whatever it is, She's able to explain to them that her product is highly densely valuable, that because of the way it is manufactured, yes, it's more expensive per ounce, but each ounce is far more potent, has a far bigger impact than the competition. And a lot of passion economy businesses, I've noticed, have to have both of those stories, the kind of emotional engaging business to consumer story and the more rational justification of a business to business story. And Lauren has done that remarkably well. And that's why for a while I was like, oh, she's just lucky. She got into matcha tea and then matcha tea blew up. But I don't think that's the trick. (laughs) I think that what Lauren did that was really special is she didn't just see tea as something she would consume. She wanted to know every single thing about it. The actual experience of tasting it, but also the science behind it, the cultural reasons that it's produced in a certain way. She wanted to understand it with a depth that allowed her to then interact with different kinds of customers and place that knowledge in a frame that spoke directly to their distinct needs. Is your goal to just maintain it as, you know, what what they call a lifestyle business, you know, a, a mom and pop kind of business where, you know, it pays the bills and it keeps you, you know, it's not a charity, you're making money, but it's not, mm-hmm. it's sort of not looking for major growth. Or do you see yourself being, I mean, I recognize you're never going to be, you know, some huge, Competitor with Procter and Gamble or something, but yeah, that's okay. But do you, see, do you <laughs> see growth? What is your goal? What do you want? I
1: do see growth. There was one year we actually grew a thousand percent,
2: ten times.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. We're currently growing now. I think one of the greatest lessons I learned and want to hang on to is. Going slow, growing slow is one of the best things and the best gifts I could have given the company and the business. And it's interesting because there is opportunities I said no to probably three years ago that I can say yes to now and be okay and not overextend my resources. And I can offer health insurance to my employee, (laughs) Employee. single employee right now. (laughs) I should say I also have a handful of part-time people that do events and whatnot. But I think growing slowly has just been integral for me also enjoying the process, you know, and I kind of always operate from the fact that this business was truly a gift to my life. And even more so that, you know, it can pay our mortgage and we can live modestly off of it, but also be good stewards of that business. And it's given me the flexibility and luxury to say yes when I want to say yes, but I've found a lot of power in saying no as a right business tool and allowing ourselves to grow into bigger opportunities when they are right. So I've definitely seen a lot of businesses that explode and then they're scrambling, picking up the pieces and being really stressed. But I feel like if it's right, then I can enjoy the process a bit more (laughs) and kind of enjoy my passion still, right? Because It is an interesting question, and I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but it's like, this is my passion, this is my hobby, but my job is to be an entrepreneur and my job is in business. And so I feel like I have to mitigate and steward both of those to find the vocational sweet spot, right?
2: It sounds to me like and correct me if I'm wrong, you don't have like a, you don't know exactly where you go. But if you can continue to grow with integrity and and in keeping with your values and your passion, like the sky's the limit in that sense. Like you would love this to be a bigger company that reaches more people. Yeah, I don't think
1: those things are mutually exclusive. Like we definitely have plans. You know, when I started... Mizuba, there was probably like five matcha companies I could count on one hand in America, and now there's zillions.
2: A zillion? One zillion? Yeah, a
1: zillion. And I see a lot of these companies, you can tell when people see a trend and they want to capitalize off of it, right? For me, I never approached matcha as like, oh, this is trendy, I'm going to make money. You know, it was more of like, this is what I enjoy, and I'm going to be a good steward of it. And Right. Like I said, that doesn't exclude me from having plans and from having dreams and from growth opportunities, but I'm only going to do it if, in my heart, I know it's right for Mizuba.
2: The Passion Economy is a Three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy.